This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Cagina is our technical producer, and Ryan White is our live stream producer. Be sure to check out my YouTube channel. Uh, channel, Strange Planet, and my Rumble channel, Richard Serrett, Strange Planet. Coming up in Hour 2, Robert W. Sullivan IV returns to the program, and I always look forward to a visit from Robert. He's such a scholar, theologian, writer, lawyer, 32nd degree Mason, historian, film researcher. He watches films, uh, well, not so much in the theater, but at home on on, on DVDs and on Blu-ray. He, he has to because uh, then he can pause them, rewind them. And um, and I'm thinking he's doing that constantly because he's, he's on the lookout for occult symbols, esoteric meaning in these films, Gnostic and alchemical sim- symbols that are embedded in these films, usually by the director. And Robert is currently working on Cinema Symbolism 4. Now, there's no... Um, misunderstanding here just so there's no misunderstanding robert doesn't talk about satanic hollywood or the illuminati he's here to talk about how certain films contain occult symbology it's hidden in plain sight but it's there for artistic purposes there's no nefarious or sinister purpose at least that he ascribes to it maybe there is but that's not what robert w sullivan the fourth talks about and of course he'd say that because he's a 32nd degree Mason, right? I know that's what you were thinking. <laughs> All right. This hour, demographics, the study of population based on factors such as age, race, and sex. And demographic data refers to socioeconomic information expressed statistically, including employment, education, income, marriage rates, birth and death rates, and more. Now, if that sounds dry, it's not. It's only because I'm not doing it justice. Demographic trends are like looking into a crystal ball. They tell us so much. They are, according to my guest this hour, a demographer, demographics are more important than economics. Ken Gronbach looks into the future using the tool of demographics to navigate the many landscapes that will define the United States, North America over the next 30 years. 
What's happening with Generation X, born between 64 and 84? The boomers, the millennials, or Generation Y? What does this mean for housing and other consumer areas, such as air travel? What about crime? And what about overpopulation? Is that a myth? Ken Gronbach is an internationally respected demographer who has been able to forecast societal, commercial, economic, cultural, and political phenomena with uncanny accuracy. Ken's unusual blend of marketing savvy and common sense demography, based on 20 years of proprietary demographic study, sets him apart. He keynotes all over the United States and does customized demographic research. He's the author of The Age Curve and the latest Upside, profiting from the profound demographic shifts ahead. Hey, Ken, welcome. How are you? Hey, great introduction. <laughs> I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. I gave a very rudimentary definition of demographics. <clears throat> so just fill in the gaps there. What did I miss? No, you, you pretty much nailed it. Uh, it, it. What demographics is live births, migration, and death for the most part. That's, that's all it is. It's very, very simple. It's a very simple science, which enables us to um, see accurately into the future. It's, it's not like we're, we're rocket scientists. We're, uh, it, it's just that the, the science is a very simple science. But keep in mind, as you just said, that uh, demographics um, precipitates economics. It's not the other way around. See, without That's people, point, you don't right. have e- And so as a dem- I mean, you're, you're pouring over mm. statistics and data. Then what do you do with it? Well, you can do it. You can do any number of things. One of the, one of the most exciting things you can do um, is you can forecast markets, and you can also uh, forecast uh, political outcome. And right now, that's that's a very hot subject. I'll say, I'll say. <clears throat> um, and so, well, I think you've sort of answered the question, but let me just let me drill down a little bit further. Then, when you say that demography is more important than economics, is it because? It, it precipitates economic activity? It comes first? Yeah, well, well think about this. If you're a businessman, uh, I guarantee you 95% of your business decisions are, are based on money. Uh, money is a symptom of something else. Money is simply uh, um, a symbol. It, it's, it's, a, it, it's, it's not a real thing. You know, the paper... Uh, dollar bills that are in your in your wallet and, and and the electrons that are on your computer that represent your bank account are uh, symptoms. The cause is people. So uh, we're very comfortable uh, dealing with the cause. If you want to forecast uh, things in the economy, you know, economists on on uh, and I'm going to be kind here are right about twenty percent of the time. Demographers <laughs> are right about eighty percent of the time. Now, granted, demography is much simpler than economics, and there's a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, different facets of economics. But for the most part, uh, yes, uh, demography is more important. And so uh, where do you gather your research from? Census, Bureau of Labor Statistics, CIA Factbook, um, and and then just a, a variety of other sources, but those are the primary sources. The census data is really the best. Uh, things you want to be careful about in demography is you can't, you know, it's, there's two types of uh, information that are not very good, and that is very new stuff and very old stuff. So um, the census data is critical. And, and, and one of the ironies and one of the problems that we're having right now in our research is that the uh, the, the 2020 
census data is not available yet. I mean, this is going to be, this is 2022. How long is it going to take? But it's, apparently it's uh, being stalled somewhere, and, and we're not really getting all of the data yet. Right. Uh, that's going to be important for the for the um, midterm elections, isn't it? Because the uh, the individual states they they start to like uh, what do they call that gerrymander and and draw new boundaries for congressional districts based on the census and and they um, so for example, if you have a migration, people moving out of certain blue states like California, moving to red states like Texas, Arizona, you've got this demographic shift. And that is often um, reflected in realigning uh, congressional districts and the, the, the number of seats that uh, um, you know, a state will, will, will gain or lose. That's exactly correct. Texas just picked up two. Florida picked up one. North Carolina picked up one. Utah picked up one. Oregon picked up one. Uh, Montana picked up one. So what that reflects simply is where are the people going? Uh, we we have a real reshuffling of the population of the United States going on right now, and the you know states like uh, uh, Michigan and uh, uh, Illinois and and Pennsylvania, New Jersey are all losing population, and the, what, and, and the people they're probably losing, uh, based on our research, is uh, Generation Y millennials that were born. 1985 to 2004, and this is the largest generation in the history of our nation, and they're going to reshape everything. You know, I live in South Florida. You should see what's happening down here. Baby boomers are invading South Florida, and they can't build structure or infrastructure fast enough for them. Uh, you know, it's a very exciting time to be down here. It's a very exciting time for demography in the United States. Right. Also a little uh, unnerving <laughs> for a number of reasons. Yeah. Can, can, Ken Gronback is with us, a demographer, and uh, his latest book is Upside, Profiting from the Profound Demographic Shifts Ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, just getting back to the, the midterms, uh, the 2022 midterms. Um, so you're seeing, you're seeing a flood of, of people. Uh, is it primarily coming out of blue states, going into red states? Is that what you're, you're seeing? Well, that's, that appears to be that, you know, uh, Texas is red. Um, California is blue. Uh, California actually uh, lost a House seat. Uh, we think that, uh, eventually that Texas will be uh, blue. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> I know. Because it, it they're, makes a lot of people they're coming, angry. They're I mean, coming out I, of I, blue states, it, it, and they're bringing their political baggage with them. <laughs> I know. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, let me give you an example here. Um, we're, we're, we are currently losing a conservative. In, in this country, every 16 seconds because they're dying. Because older people tend to be conservatives. You know, keep in mind that, that uh, demography is, is big picture, long-term, 30,000 feet macro. So we make generalizations, and you can with demography, and you can very accurately with demography. We're gaining a liberal in our country every eight seconds because they're coming at age to vote. And in the generation that's uh, you know, registering to vote is called Generation Y Millennials. And there's 88 million of them. There's actually 10 million of them more than uh, their baby boomer parents. And their baby boomer parents are currently 58 to, to 77, which means that, you know, they're 
they're passing through the time continuum, and they will, they're about to, to challenge death care like no other generation has ever challenged death care. I don't think we have enough cemeteries, funeral homes, or, or uh, crematoriums to handle the, the number of people that are going to die, um, and, you know, baby boomers. But what that means is we are losing conservatives and gaining liberals. From 2016 to 2020, the, the advantage that the liberals had was close to 25 million, just simply based on death and registering to vote, period. In 2024, it's going to be 50 million. So I think we're going to have a liberal in the White House um, for at least another 11 years. Well, I'd be interested in your take on this, because I've, I've heard some things out of Pew Research and so forth that, um, that uh, religious conservatives tend to have far more children. Uh, so won't conservatives eventually catch up and overtake just through attrition? Yeah, you know, that, that, you can make an argument to that. But I, I think you'll find that uh, even though, uh, you know, evangelicals are having more kids, um, their kids will still tend to be liberals while they're young. I mean, do, do you remember what, what Winston Churchill said? He said that if, if you're... Uh, if you're under 30 and you're not a liberal, uh, you don't have a heart. And if you're over 30 and, and you're not a conservative, you don't have a brain. It's true. Right. I mean, we, right. we really do, we start out as liberals, and then as we age and amass wealth and don't want to share the things with other people that don't deserve it, we become more conservative. So there's, there's a real predictable spectrum from young to old, liberal to conservative. Right, right. Interesting. Uh, I want to talk about crime a little bit. I mean, I, I don't know if this is something that you you explore, but yeah. uh, we always hear about, oh, crime is a result of poverty, and I've never believed that. If you look at crime rates during the Depression, they were very low, uh, despite the fact that you know, there were a lot of poor people around during the Depression. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the, I think the, the, the converse is that, the inverse is true. I think, I think uh, crime creates poverty. Uh, but do you... Do you see, as populations age, uh, do you see that as a greater determining factor with crime, the types of crime? So violent crime probably would go down as populations age. I don't know, maybe other types of crime might go up, like white-collar crime. Yeah, it might go up, but it's very small. This is, this is how it's going to work, and, and this is a, uh, law enforcement. Law enforcement for the last 20 years has been drawing from a talent pool that's very small. And the talent pool they've been drawing from is called Generation X, born 1965 to 1984. So these would be people that are currently 38 to 57. A tiny group. So law enforcement literally, and, and you know, this is not an indictment of law enforcement because I deeply respect those people that are first responders and, and police. But if, if you had a pulse, they would hire you. What's happening now is there is a whole new crop, of a huge talent pool that they're going to draw from called Generation Y Millennials, 88 million people that were born 1985 to 2004. So we're going to have much better law enforcement, much more talent in law enforcement. Now, the other, end of the, the other side of the coin is who commits crime? Well, crime simply is committed by men 15 to 30. They commit about 70% of the crime. Um, 
what's happening to that population? It's shrinking. Why is it shrinking? Because they weren't born. It's a small group. Uh, and the, the, the generation that, that's born uh, 2005 and after is going to be much smaller than the Generation Y millennials. Uh, it's called Gen Z. And it's going to be a smaller group. So we're going to have a smaller group of crime committers and a larger group of talent for law enforcement. So the country is going to essentially be safer. Now, I know we're going through some issues right now, and I think a lot of those are frustrated, COVID-related, other things. That, you know, uh, but overall, crime should drop. Right. And, and uh, so... We may actually be able to defund the police, but for all the right reasons, because yeah. the crime well, the crime is going down. Uh, I rather hope, than we, for I political hope we don't reasons. do that. Ken Gronback is with us, and uh, the latest book is Upside, Profiting from the Profound Demographic Shifts Ahead. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about China, because um, they are seen now as you know the great adversary economically, militarily, geopolitically. Uh, but they are in a real bind. They put themselves in a real bind with this one-child policy. Mm-hmm. What, is, what has happened in China since the, this uh, misguided uh, policy? Well, under 40 years old, what they've managed to do, and if you use my numbers, uh, they've prevented, and I'll use that loosely, a half billion people, 500 million. If you use Elon Musk's, numbers, and, and I, I deeply respect the man, and I think he steals my stuff. <laughs> no, <laughs> no offense, Elon. That's but a great compliment. He's saying, he's saying it's uh, uh, 750 million people that they're missing under 40 years old. What, what does that mean? Well, the one-child-only policy, they went from having six kids to a mandated uh, one child. Well, that didn't exactly work, so it was a little over one that was allowed um, in China. And, and the, the they, they tended to um, favor males. In fact, they have 90 million more men under 40, uh, males under 40, than they do women. And, and these poor guys have no chance of getting married because there's no female counterparts. So what China has done is they took advantage of what they call a demographic dividend, and that is they had uh, a lot of dinks, dual income, no kids, uh, in their country, and it drove their economy to, you know, these 6% increases in GDP for over a long period of time. But it's over. Their, their labor force over the last three years has been shrinking and will continue to shrink, and now they literally have hundreds of millions of elderly people they can't feed because they have no families because of the one-child-only policy. So China is cooked. You know, people, I hear this all the time that, that you know, China's going to pass us economically and, and, you know, we're going to be left in the dust. Nonsense. Their, their GDP is half ours and it's not going anywhere. It is not growing. It can't grow because they don't have labor. Do we have labor? We have the best labor force that we've ever had in the history of, of uh, our country. And that labor force is currently 18 to uh, 37 years old. It's, it, it's, entered the labor force late because the baby boomers uh, didn't leave voluntarily, but these are the baby boomers' kids that are finding their way into the labor force, and they're wonderful. I mean, you have to try to understand them, but they're, they're going to be the best labor we've ever had. 
Uh, Ken, we're uh, coming up on a break here, but let me just, uh, we'll, we'll start this, uh, I'll ask you this question and we will probably continue it after the break. And that getting back to China for a moment and this huge male cohort that are destined to remain single, um, because because women, you know, we when men marry, women provide a very a much needed sort of breaking mechanism on some of our behaviors, let's say. Um, <laughs> Uh, So these unattached young men, are we then likely to see or are we seeing a a crime problem in China right now? You know, that's a good question. I don't know. know, And I'll I'll be straight with you, Richard. You don't get good information out of China. You really don't. We haven't gotten good COVID information out of China. We just don't get good information from them. They tell us what they want to tell us. Uh, But what you just said makes a ton of sense. All right. We'll um, we'll pick it up on the other side. Okay. Ken Gronbeck is with us, demographer. His latest is Upside, profiting from the profound demographic shifts ahead. This is fascinating stuff. Stay where you are. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with demographer Ken Gronbach and the book, the latest, is Upside, Profiting from the Profound Demographic Shifts Ahead. Um, You were saying we don't get a a lot of good data out of China, but let me just ask you, um, because China has a, a demographic problem, Mm-hmm. self-inflicted, uh, and they don't allow for immigration, is right. it possible, and here I'm not just talking about China specifically, but is it possible when a, when a population, when your, your birth rate falls uh, below replacement level and you don't allow new immigrants, is it possible to reverse, I mean, you can't turn, you can't reverse that trend on a dime. Are we likely to see massive depopulation in China? Yes. And one of the craziest things, Richard, and it makes me nuts because, you know, I follow the, the, uh, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, very closely because I, I, and I can't go to China. I've, I've been warned about that many times. Um, you know, I stopped, I stopped Damler Benz from building a truck factory there. Um, but the, what, they're, what they're doing now is they've gone to a three-child policy, and they're encouraging people to have kids, and they're paying people to have kids. The only problem is the one-child-only policy uh, eliminated the parents. I mean, mm. these people can't count. They, I mean, they can't go look at this and, and determine that the one child, what the, exactly what the one-child-only policy did. They're xenophobic. They don't take immigrants. They don't like people that are different than them, just like um, – uh, Japan. Japan's got exactly the same problem, but they. So what? What will happen is the population is going to nosedive. And it, it, I want you to think about this in ter- terms of uh, COVID. Uh, the the numbers that we're seeing, and again, they're new numbers. We tend not to trust them completely, but COVID tends to kill the elderly at, at a much higher rate than they kill younger people. Um, and and uh, you know, there's all kinds of suspicions about. Where COVID came from, uh, out of a, you know a lab in uh, China, uh, I'm wondering, and I this is subject subjective now. I don't have data to this end, but I'm wondering if they were just trying to solve their elderly issue, and it got out of hand. 
Well, I've, I have heard that before, Ken. I don't think that's out of the question. Uh, I mean, we are dealing with incredibly evil regime. They're Malthusians. They are uh, you got that right. not much better than Nazi Germany. I'm talking about the regime, not the people. Oh, oh, no, oh, no, they're worse than... They, they make Nazi Germany... And, and, and don't, please, don't misunderstand. Nazi Germany was heinous. But they make Nazi Germany uh, uh, look like choir boys... <laughs> Based on what they're going to do, and let me tell you, you know, they they did forced abortions. Literally, if you if, if they found a woman and they, and there were people everywhere watching for this that was pregnant and already had a child, she had a she had a forced abortion, and that she was responsible for. Um, they, they would give her the dead fetus in a hospital. I mean, what the heck is that? Yeah, that's uh, just and they, pure and they would evil. find baby girls all routinely in dumpsters. I mean, routinely. Ugh. I mean by by the hundreds of thousands. I mean, it's, this is, it's a, I don't know. It's, yeah, you know, it's it remarkable. We see, we see all these all these artists right now lining up to, uh, you know, to boycott Spotify. I don't see many athletes lining up to boycott China. However, that's another show, I suppose. Another show. Um, another, <laughs> yeah, uh, but so how quickly does a population drop? What is China now? 1.5, 1.6 billion? How, how quickly will that drop and to what level before it levels off or will it? Is it in free fall? No, and it, I wouldn't say it was in free fall, but because, um, again, demography is live births and deaths. Um, what, what is in free fall is the average age in China, and they're going to be a very, very old nation, and then their population will begin to drop precipitously. It, um, they're at about one-four. Uh, we're watching very closely, watching India, because I, I sincerely believe that India has already eclipsed uh, China. And, but, so the population in China and the, uh, the workforce in China, the labor in China, which incidentally was working for about 25% of what the rest of the world uh, was being paid for a very long time, which is why you, you walk into Walmart and everything's from China. Well, all of that is going to end because they no longer have that labor. They eliminated it, and their new policy of, of having three kids is nonsense, because all you're doing is creating more dependence in the country, so you're going to have elderly, and then you have a whole new crop of dependent kids. What does that mean? And it's not working anyway. So um, you, you want to, let me give you another one that will freak you out a little bit. Um, you know, they did forced abortions, um, I believe what they're going to do is is create forced pregnancies. Oh my lord! Oh no, no, I'm seeing I'm seeing bits and pieces of that come come through. Yeah, they'll make it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so what does that mean? What is it? How do you do that? I don't know. I don't even want to contemplate it at this point. No, I mean, no, I think we I know I how either. they do it, but no, they're they're in deep trouble. And um, so what what we're seeing right now is that China is going on a war footing. They're, you know, the South China Sea and then Taiwan. You know, and there's a lot of saber rattling and, and showing off new armaments. The dead last thing they could do or or should do with with their current economy is uh, or or demography is get into a war. That would be awful. It, would, it just wouldn't work. So when we talk about and we hear this, and I've, I've always maintained it's a myth, overpopulation. Uh, you know, back in the 60s, we're going to run out of food. And, and I remember in the 80s, uh, in the textbooks, they were saying, we're going to run out of fresh water. And, and uh, there are limits to growth and all of this. I, I think it's nonsense. 
Uh, and I read once a statistic that you could you could you could fit every man, woman, and child all what are we close to eight billion souls inside the city limits of Orlando, which is a pretty big. Well, you're from Florida. Uh, <laughs> yeah, is that well, true? You know I'd could, be shoulder to shoulder, but you could put every yeah, man, woman, and not, child in Orlando. Yeah. If you no, if you wanted to do a group hug, and, and I'm I'm not in favor of that sort of thing, <laughs> <laughs> but if you wanted to do a group hug, you could take all 7.7 billion of us in in the world and uh, do it in Los Angeles. Yeah. Really? yeah. If you wanted to have a party and you wanted to invite all 7.7 billion of your closest friends and you wanted to give them four square feet so they could dance at your party, you could put everybody in R- Rhode Island. No, we don't have a problem. We produce enough food to feed uh, 14, 15 billion people uh, every day, and we throw half of it away. We mm. can't. There are some starving people, and we can't get food to them, but it's not because we don't have food. It's because their governments are crooked, right, and, we, exactly. and it's just a distribution issue. So, so uh, one of the, the, the areas that, that we, do, we do see, I guess, a, a fairly rapid increase in population is sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's... Do you have any data there? Uh, is that starting to um, is that starting to level off, or is that continue continually uh, growing? No, the Sub-Saharan Africa. That's a, that's a, a very very good question because it's about a billion people. There are about thirty. 30 I'm guessing now because I'm, I don't think anybody's really sure how many countries there are. But you know, it's between like thirty-five and forty countries. But their fertility in some of the countries is six. So they're. You're going to see sub-Saharan Africa increase in population over time. Um, it is, but is it falling off? Yes, it is. We're, we're starting to see population drop everywhere. It's dropped in the EU. It's dropped in Eastern Europe. It's certainly dropped in Russia. I think the reason that uh, Vladimir Putin wants to go into Ukraine is because he needs their population because his population is old and sick and very heavily weighted to women. You know, look at, look at the, the soldiers that, you know, find their way onto TV, the, the Russian soldiers, and, and you'll see women in, in the front-line ranks. Uh, that's very unusual, and the reason for that is they don't have men. You know, Interesting. If, if you're a 16-year-old male in Russia, you have a 50-50 chance of making it to 60, and half of the men that die in Russia die drunk. So Vladimir Putin's got a serious, serious problem, and I think he's trying to wow. solve it in Ukraine. So, what is happening with 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 the world's population? Is it a, is it a co- combination of, of uh, I don't know, low fertility, uh, sperm motility, um, in, increase in the standard of living, which tends to reduce population? What is yeah. what is the 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 main driver behind this? Well. <laughs> Again, I don't mean to freak you out, but you're asking all the right questions. You really are. So you're a very astute man. Um, we have created with within you know and that we created a an an alternate world, have we not? I mean, it's uh, yeah. They call it the metaverse. Everyone, you know, that's, it's that's, like the metaverse. The metaverse is asleep. even going to be worse <laughs> because that's you're going to put you're going to literally go into this alternate reality. But one third of the internet is a substitute for normal relations between men and women. And, um, and when you talk about addiction levels, addiction levels for men in, in the United States, it's way over 50% to that one-third. And, and computers don't have babies. So uh, and, and let me give you another example. 
Japan. In Japan, what we're watching now is not only are they not having kids, they're not getting married, and they're not dating. What the heck is that? What, and, and, and Japan, technologically, has always been more advanced than the United States. Now, in, in Japan, too, that doesn't do, you know, they're xenophobic. They do not do immigrants. Uh, Japan will probably do 2060 because they literally will not have any taxpayers. My word. What does yeah. that even mean, disappear? No, I, I mean, somebody will take it over. I, I imagine the landmass will still be there. I don't know how they'd run it. I really don't. I don't know how they'll run it. Because you know, who pays tax? You know, the electric taxpayers are essential to any culture. Those that have, uh, you know, spend the most, live in the biggest houses, and make the most. Uh, if they don't exist, if your population is shrinking and that category of your population doesn't exist, how do you fund your country? Excellent point. Yeah, yeah just a big yeah. for sale sign in Japan, and <laughs> well, they'll have to move. Uh, they'll just well, they'll they'll either have to take a huge influx of immigrants, uh, which would cause all sorts of, you know, cultural upheaval and 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 so forth. Yeah, it's not going to be pretty. Uh, no. We'll take another time out. This is fascinating, Ken. Well, okay. I'm going to have to have that have you back. Uh, this is so. Amazing. Some of it's absolutely shocking. We'll also open up the phone lines and take questions from our uh, our live stream on YouTube and uh, and Rumble. And if uh, my live stream producer Ryan can curate those and send those to me, I'll uh, I'll ask Ken. Ken Gronback uh, is with us and uh, the author of Upside: Profiting from the Profound Demographic Shifts Ahead. Back with more of our conversation straight ahead. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Ken Gronback. Upside, profiting from the profound demographic shifts ahead. Um, are there a lot of demographers that I don't? I haven't heard of too many. Ken, uh, you would think no. this would be a uh, you want proof? You know, a burgeoning industry? No, I, I don't know if it is or not. But uh, if, if you Google uh, Ken demographer, uh, see what happens. I come up wall to wall because I'm the only Ken. So do the math. Are there many in in the world? No, I'd say probably a few thousand, but not many. It's not not like uh, uh, economists or accountants. Right, right. So, you know, I, I had a few comments here on the live stream saying, "Wow, this is really dark. This is this is bad news." Give us some good news. Well, you want some good news? Yeah. Okay. United States, Canada, Mexico. Central and South America. The center, we're going to be the center of the earth. Why? Because we had kids. Well, first of all, the United States has kids. Uh, Canada, not so much. And I'm kind of mad at you guys because your, your, um, your fertility is not good. And, uh, but I don't think it's going to be an issue for you because of your proximity to the United States. I think you, you will be fine. Mexico has perfect demography. Absolutely perfect. Uh, Central and South America is spotty. It d- depends on the country. But what's going to happen to the United States? 
housing is the economy, the economy is housing. In 2008, we had uh, too many houses, and it was a, a bubble that burst, and everybody lost value in their house. What's the problem now? We have too many buyers. The, there's about 155 million housing structures or housing units in the United States, and that's everything from a mobile home to multifamily housing to freestanding housing and mansions, whatever, whatever people live in, about 155 million. Uh, half of our population um, up to about six or seven years ago was all living under one roof, and that was baby boomers and their kids. So you had 80 million baby boomers and 88 million of their kids living under one roof, and the kids are finally moving out. They're moving out of their parents' basements. They're, they're throwing all those trophies away that they didn't deserve. They're starting households. <laughs> they're getting married. They're going to have kids. When you do the math on the generation um, that's leaving home, this Generation Y millennials, we're 25 million housing units short of our needs over the course of their uh, probably the next 10 or 15 years, which means that's going to drive the economy like you cannot believe. And also, because everything is housing, everything, everything. I spoke to uh, loggers in Oregon, and you know, I speak all over the United States, I really, and, and it really is a wonderful education. And I said, how are you going to handle the need <clears throat> for wood with, with the uh, crushing need of, you know, with all the houses that we're going to need to build? And I said, we can't. We can't cut trees fast enough. So houses are going to be built out of plastic, and houses are going to be built out of concrete more and more and more. But we're going to and build going to houses. With 3D either printers. The, the, these kids are going to sleep in their cars. Right, right. And they're going to start building, build, they're going to start building them with 3D printers. Or is that, is that uh, um, overblown? I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you, any way that you build them is going to be better than, than not having them. But right, right now... Um, I live in South Florida. What's happening here? We have the baby boomers are finally, you know, COVID are saying enough is enough. I'm retiring, moving down here. Uh, the population of Florida currently is about, a good guess would be about 24 million. It'll go to 35 million in the next 10 or 15 years, which means you cannot believe the building that's going on down here. So right. you wanted good news? That's going to drive our economy, and it's going to drive our economy to, play, to in, in, in a way that we don't understand. We really don't understand. It is going to be huge. You want some more good news? Yes. Okay. Baby boomers. Baby boomers, <clears throat> if you assess the wealth of the, of the baby boomers, you, can, you will come up with about $100 trillion. and I'm not kidding. There's, they have $20 trillion in the stock market. They have $10 trillion in banks. And they have about 70 trumers are currently 58 to uh, 77 years old. The, the, uh, the year that the body breaks is 75. That's, that's a good number. The body breaks, and you start really needing health care. Baby boomers are moving to Florida, and the ones that are moving down here tend to be the, the leading edge or the older ones, and they really need health care. Uh, Baby boomers have mass money and motivation. They don't have dying on their punch list, so they're going to be throwing money at health care like you cannot believe more than any time in, our his in the history of our country. So we are forecasting that we will beat cancer, we will beat heart disease, we will beat Alzheimer's, and many, many other uh, issues that we have health-wise. The only problem is, if this is a problem, is we're all going to live longer. 
uh, and much longer. And I'm and I'm talking about playing golf at 100 years old. So right. It's gonna well, be we're going to live longer than the uh, than our than our 401. In the U.S., the 401k, it's going yeah, to run out before we do. Before we do. Yeah. I mean, it's so. Are we going to run out of money? Are we going to get too old before before we our money holds up? I don't know. Probably not. Right. So, if I'm hearing you, uh, some of the the um, uh, angles here are in terms of demographics. If you're a young person, get into the trades because they're going to need tradespeople to build all these houses. Or get into the healthcare field, not necessarily just a doctor or a nurse, become a radiologist, become a chiropractor, become uh, an x-ray technician, right? That is exactly correct. Two things are going to happen. You know, you're pretty smart. Are you sure? Did, did you? Have you stolen my stuff? <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let me tell you what's, what's going to happen. Uh, you know, my um, I have two two girls. One's twenty six and one's twenty nine. And when we we my twenty nine year old went to college, she said, "Dad," because uh, she she switched colleges. And she said, "All the guys are taken." And I said, "What do you mean?" She said, "There are more girls at college than there are guys." We did the math on that, and it's like sixty forty. What happened? And because and she's a Gen Y millennial. She's part of the eighty eight million baby boomers. Uh, leaving the labor force, left heating, ventilation, air conditioning. They left uh, electrician. They left plumbing. They left uh, the trades. You know, building. You know, IT. They left all those things and retired on, and are retiring at, at the rate of four or five million a year. And uh, the Generation Y millennials realized that they could make a substantial living males without going to college. So. They didn't go to college, and they continue not to go to not going to college because of exactly what you just said, and that's trades. Ah, and that that plays into something else. Uh, I'll pick it up on the other side. We're we're up against a break. Uh, more and more young people not going to college, and that has a political implication. I think I'll ask uh, when we come back. Ken Gronbach is the author of Upside: Profiting from the Profound Demographic stu- uh, Shifts Ahead. Back with more of our conversation in a couple minutes. Don't go away. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. A few minutes remain with Ken Gronbach, and the books are The Age Curve, and the latest is Upside, Profiting from the Profound Demographic Shifts Ahead. I just wanted to follow up on something I said before the break, and then I'll dive into the questions from the live stream. Okay. And you mentioned more and more young men going or skipping college, going into the trades, because there are jobs aplenty there. Uh, I heard and read that, uh, demographically speaking, um, young males who don't go to college are more likely to vote Republican. That could be. But I don't think on a mass scale yet because they're young. Um, I, I, I think what you will have to watch is that 
a significant change that is taking place, and you're seeing it already in in Congress, and that is uh, young women uh, congressmen. Why? Because the women are going to lead more so than ever in this particular generation because they're more educated. Uh, I believe that law school now is 70-30 women. What does that mean? That means they're going to lead. That means they're going to be CEOs. That means they're going to be in a C-suite. That means they're going to be making changes. Um, but I can't, I, I don't know for sure. And it's a good question, Richard. And then it, if, in fact, the young men do go into trades, uh, you know, how will they position themselves uh, politically? I don't know. I really don't. All right. Uh, I mean, and, and the other thing here is that the whole, this is not necessarily a demography type issue, but, uh, you know, uh, in terms of politics, we're seeing a major realignment. It's not necessarily even about left and right anymore, liberal and conservative. It's, you know, there's a populist movement. There are people who just feel it's it's like it's the people versus the, the ruling class. There, that seems to be this titanic struggle that we're we're in anymore so i don't know if if right and versus left uh is what it's all about uh let's see here we go solar warden asks can what do the demographics look like for countries isolated due to u.s sanctions like iran and venezuela etc you know good question i don't know Iran's uh, fertility has dropped significantly i think they're below replacement level uh certainly one of the things that happens um in uh, bad times is not a not an abundance of babies is just the just the opposite in fact they say if you want to completely shut off your fertility uh, make your housing prices too high <laughs> canada great yeah mm-hmm. exactly <laughs> uh there are a number of people in the live chat asking what's the best way to profit from these demographic changes well we touched on some of them that had to do with housing and health care how else yeah. can we profit from these demo changes well, one of the big things is you're going to see consumerism at a level that we don't understand when this new generation uh, enters the labor force, has money, and buys stuff. When my, my girls moved out of our house, they didn't take the vacuum cleaner. They didn't take the snowblower. They didn't take all the, the food out of the cupboard. They bought their own. Baby boomers did exactly the same thing in the 60s, 70s, 80s when they drove the economy with their massive consumption based on their size. So get in front of uh, their needs. I'll give you a good example because it's something that I just did. Um, you know, I come out of the marketing field and, um, you know, I, was, I just recently bought a, a, like three pair of new glasses, and I'm thinking, how how's that that business going to fare? You know, eyeglasses. Eyeglasses are driven by this uh, a problem that humans get called presbyopia, and that is when your eyes go south, and you, you you can't see well, so you need glasses. When does that happen? Between 40 and 45. When the baby boomers passed through that narrow demo. That particular category of uh, commerce absolutely exploded. Well, it's about to explode again. What about automobiles? Who buys automobiles? Automobiles are bought by the same group, 40 to 45. I don't know why. I think it's because they they have to transport the kids, they drive more, whatever. But um, remember, the largest generation in our history is currently uh, 18 to 37 years old, and the generation in front of it, called Generation X, is very small. So you have a very small generation passing through their uh, their consuming years, and we kind of get used to it. And then a monster group comes along, and what you want to what what you want to do is to meet 
the demand. And that's that's right. the whole trick. Right. How do you, how do you benefit? You meet the demand. All right. Weiwei Anella asks, what career fields would Ken recommend for my kids? Medicine. Absolutely. IT and, and anything medical. Oh, you want a sleeper? Death care. Get, in, oh, get, in, yeah. get into death care. Because once boomers start to die, and they, and they will die at essentially double the rate that you see people dying at now because of their mass, it, it, there's no one. To, we don't have enough cemeteries to bury them. We don't have enough funeral homes. We don't have enough crematoriums. And we don't have enough hospitals. We don't have enough anything. Remarkable. Uh, Not Gordian asks, how will water shortages be addressed with population growth like in Southern California and Florida? I don't know. I, I, that's, I, I leave that to the scientists. I'm, and I'm hoping that, you know, I, I, I visit my brother in uh, Las Vegas all the time and Lake Mead freaks me out. I mean, it is so far down. Uh, I don't know. It's, it, that's an issue. That's a real issue. I don't know. Uh, so, if, if someone wants to get in, uh, become a demographer, not that you uh, necessarily want more competition, but uh, <laughs> well, what, what, what kind of schooling is required? Well, you know, I tell you, I, I don't have a formal um, education in demography. Uh, what did I do? Um, I, I was forced into demography, forced into an understanding of, of, of um, how populations work when I lost a, a multi-million dollar client in my you know, my advertising agency. And I did so because uh, uh, American Honda motorcycles were sold to men 16 to 24 years old. Once the boomers passed through that demo, it was over. And, and that taught me a lesson. No, I think what you do is read my books, give me a call, talk to me, talk to other demographers. I can give you some people that you can chat with. Uh, they're the, probably the best demographer on the planet is a guy by the name of Dr. Nicholas Everstadt, and he's based out of uh, Washington, D.C., and he's like the State Department demographer. And uh, he's incredible, and he loves to talk to young people. I don't think, I don't think he has a degree in demography, but I think that uh, it, it's just something that he does, and he does very well, and, he, and he's written books on it, and he's done research, just like I have. Well, I, I would I would think that governments, government agencies, would would be more reliant on demographers in order to properly plan. You know, in terms of infrastructure and and so forth, are, are they not properly utilizing demographers? Is that why they seem to muck everything up? Yes, and I, I'm telling you, Richard, you're you're smart. Not too many people can come to that conclusion, and and I kind of stay away from it because it sounds like I'm being bitter or something. But I don't understand why people don't understand that it's people. It's not money. It's people. You, you want to you improve your business going forward? Put, put as much effort as, as you possibly can into human resources and less effort into uh, finances. And you'll do much better. You really will. How do we get a copy of Upside, Profiting from the Profound Demographic Shifts Ahead, Ken? Uh, go to uh, uh, kgcdirect.com. That's my site. You can buy it there, or you can buy it on Amazon. Amazon has all my stuff. kgcdirect.com. I think I've, I know I've linked up to uh, your yeah. website at strangeplanet.ca. Just click on your name, and, and, and that'll take you right there. Can freak your audience out? <laughs> yeah. Sorry? 
I said, hire me to speak, and I'll, and I'll change your audience. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, and we have to have you on again. This was absolutely fascinating. Ken, I'm so glad that we hooked up. Thank you so much for this. My pleasure, my friend. You take care. All right. Demography. We gotta. We have to learn more about this. All right, when we come back, Robert W. Sullivan IV, film historian, lawyer, theologian, 32nd degree Mason. Did I mention that? We'll, uh, we'll look at the uh, occult symbology embedded, encoded in some of your favorite movies. Back with that. Stay with us. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Film historian, author, theologian, lawyer, 32nd degree Mason, Robert W. Sullivan IV is here this hour to delve into occult symbolism in popular Hollywood movies and sometimes not big Hollywood blockbusters or, or popcorn movies. Sometimes he talks about the occultic subtext in small but popular independent films and even foreign films. Previously, uh, on this program and uh, on Coast to Coast, when uh, Robert has joined me on that program, uh, he's discussed the Gnostic films of the late 90s and early 2000s, like The Matrix, Dark City, Fight Club, The Truman Show, uh, Donnie Darko, Vanilla Sky. Films embedded with Gnostic symbology are, are characterized by things like false realities, expanding consciousness, uh, characters manipulated by a puppet master. Uh, but Gnostic symbology is uh, is is uh, an esoteric, or not the only type of esoteric meanings encoded in movies. There's numerology, uh, Masonic symbology. There's Christian symbology. Uh, if you've never heard Robert W. Sullivan the Fourth, you are in for a treat, and I guarantee you'll never watch movies the same way again. You'll constantly be hitting the pause and rewind. And what was that I just saw in the corner of the screen? Robert W. Sullivan the Fourth, historian, philosopher, antiquarian, jurist, lay theologian, writer, mystic, radio, TV personality, best-selling author, CEO. 
uh, and lawyer. He's the author of five books, The Royal Arch of Enoch, Cinema Symbolisms 1, 2, and 3, and A Pact with the Devil. The latter is a work of fiction. And uh, always a delight to welcome Robert back to the program. Hey, Robert, how are you? Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me on The Conspiracy Show. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, so, um, the uh, the latest volume. I know that you're um, you're working on Cinema Symbolism Four. Um, when can we expect that? That's still going to be a little ways off. Um, there's movies that I actually want to analyze or at least look at uh, that I have yet to see, um, such as like the, the the latest Matrix movie, and uh, I know uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife. I know Ghostbusters comes out on Blu-ray on Tuesday. You know, it's it's going to be a while. It's uh, it's going to be at least a year or two before that comes out. Um, I'm also making some edits to some of my other books, so um, probably at least a year or two, I would say, before uh, Cinema Symbolism Four hits the uh, hits the street. All right. Well, if uh, people have some catching up to do, if they haven't read Cinema Symbolism One, Two, and Three, so by the time they work their way through those, uh, then hopefully Cinema Symbolism will be Four will be ready. How many films do you watch in a year? Oh, good grief. I, I, I don't know. Um, I usually go through a slate of movies that I, I want to see. I mean, well, a lot of times um, if I'm working, when you say how many movies do I watch, it's too hard. It's too hard to, for me to estimate. Um, I mean, I do have a day job also. Um, like what if I'm editing or working um, and I just sometimes in the background, if there's nothing on TV, I'll just throw a movie on. that I'm just kind of like, you know, passively watching, paying attention to. Um, so I don't know if that really counts. Um you know, how many new movies, like movies that I've never seen before. You know, again, it just depends. Um, you know, I, I just watched uh, the, the two that I just watched that came out in the theater a few months ago were um, uh, uh, Halloween Kills and The Last Night in Soho and Dune. I, I should add that in. I just saw Dune as well. Um, this is the 2021 version, not the 1984 version. Um, I right. Yeah. And I, I liked I liked all of them. Um, I thought they were all very, very well done. Um you know, definitely worthy of analysis. I guess Dune, Dune is sort of like, you know, the, the David Lynch version. Um, I mean, it's the Campbell monument. They left out some stuff that I thought would have been in. And then they put some stuff in that I thought maybe they could have left out. But all in all, I, I very much liked uh, the new Dune. Last Night in Soho um, is interesting. That's Edgar Wright. Uh, that has a, a, a very um, latent alchemical storyline around one of the characters. Um, and Halloween Kills, um, you got a lot of uh, um, role reversal, yeah. homages in that one, Easter eggs, um, like the last one was, like two, Halloween 2018 was. So, you know, those are ones that I really, I really enjoyed, and I thought were, you know, if I do when I do CS4, I'll make sure they go in. Um, and like I said, the the next ones up that I I want to see, I want to see the latest Ghostbusters movie, which is due out Tuesday on Blu-ray, and then the next Matrix movie, which I think is due out in March. Right. Now, uh, and we'll we'll come back to Hollywood Kills because Mike Myers strikes again. Um, he just won't stay down. He will not stay down. We'll come back and talk about some of the uh, the symbology there. But let me just – I want people to get a sense of how you work. So do you watch typically – when you watch a movie and you say, oh, I, 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 there's a lot of stuff happening here. I'm going to go back and watch it again. Like you watch it all the way through from beginning to end. And then you go back and and then, you know, you hit that pause and rewind and you start taking notes. Is that how it works? Yeah, that, that that's pretty much it. Usually the first time I watch it is for just entertainment value, just to see if I like the movie, you know, just just to watch it just for kicks. Um, usually, even when I'm doing that, though, I pick up on some stuff, you know, that I kind of make mental notes of. 
Um, and yeah, it's absolutely. I mean, I, I usually when I sit down to really pick it apart, you know, when, when I when I've reached that stage, um, like I haven't watched, I haven't done that with Halloween Kills yet. I mean, I've watched it two or three, four times, but I haven't made notes on it. I mean, I could certainly talk about it, but when, when I reach the point where I'm going to write about it, then I'll sit down there, and sit down and watch it with a notepad, you know, making notes or even the computer on making notes on, you know, on the document, um, what I want to talk about in the film, um, you know, wh what I saw going on, um, things like that. And, and that, again, that can happen on any one of, 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 of a viewing, usually after the first one. I never do it on the first viewing. Um, it's usually the second or third one um, that I do it on, but only when I'm ready to analyze it. Um, you know, I, I haven't, I, I, with Cinema Symbolism 4, I've just outlined it. Um, I mean, when I say I have outlined it, I've made notes of what movies I want to put in and some, some salient points here and there. Right. Uh, but I actually haven't done any full-blown full analysis of, like, Halloween Kills. But, I mean, if you ask me about it, I can certainly talk about it. Okay, so, uh, again, there may be people joining us who haven't heard uh from you before, and so I want to give him the sense how this works. I mentioned uh, Gnostic symbolism, and I mentioned uh, just you know recounting some of our earlier conversations. So this sure. is sort of your work. I'm I'm parroting here, but uh, Gnostic symbol symbolism in these movies there there are you know false realities. There's expanded consciousness. There's you know puppets being controlled by masters, and I mentioned. Uh, I mentioned uh, The Matrix, and I mentioned Truman, The Truman Show, and Donnie Darko, and Vanilla Sky, and so forth. Um, what else What else can you tell us about Gnostic symbology? Like, what do you look for, and you can say, ah, this is a Gnostic, this is a Gnostic film? Yeah, I mean, you, you hit some of them. I mean, not all those elements are always present. Um, it, it's, again, when, uh, like, a, like you said, I mean, you... you Got it right on uh, the, the false reality or a multiple or a multiverse where there's one reality that may be true and one reality that may be fake. We find that in Vanilla Sky. We find that in the Truman Show. We find that in the Matrix. Um, you know, is there a creator of the false illusion um, as there is in the Truman Show, um, you know, with Kristoff, which is the Ed Harris character? Um, that would be that would be, you know, th th that's a hallmark of a Gnostic film. We, you know, the. Uh, the one that's another one that's similar to this is like Snowpiercer, um, and and again one one element um, that I would add in that's in Snowpiercer is, is there's always um, a lot of times there's like a you know it's what Campbell calls the road of trials there's like a like a series of progressions um, that the character or the protagonist or protagonists have to make um, in order to reach their final uh, you know objective which is kind of like, you know, enlightenment, uh, a Gnostic epiphany. Um, you know, Truman has to fight his way out of Sea Haven. Uh, in, in, in Snowpiercer, um, which is another one of these, and again, what's funny with Snowpiercer is Ed Harris played the Demiurge again in that one, uh, where the characters are making their way through the train cars, which are sort of these simulated realities, um, up to the very front of the car, which is where the creator, creator dwells. And the idea, and Dorothy Gale in The Wizard of Oz, you know, the trials that she's going through with uh, in, in, in Oz with the monkeys and the, the flying monkeys and the trees throwing the apples and the poppy fields, you know, and confronting the wizard. Um, these are what you could call like levels or tests of spiritual purification that the character or characters are going through to ultimately reach their goal. This reflects, <clears throat> the, the, this reflects a lot of ancient doctrines that run parallel. Um, this is, is Gnostic and in, in Gnosticism, they're called the seven governors. It's these levels of what you'd call super celestial purification, um, that the soul goes on after death 
to reach the higher Godhead. Um, but of course, we find this in mundane reality as well. Um, and, and it's, par- it's, it's, it's parodied. It, 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 you find it in Kabbalah with the Sephirah. It's the same sort of thing. So inevitably, a lot of times with these Gnostic films, you're, you'll find these sort of road of trials, levels of spiritual pur- purification that the character, although the character remains alive, it's these sort of tests of integrity, of, uh, of, of, of ch- challenges, if you will, that purify, um, that prepare the character for the ultimate revelation at the end. Um, and you'll find those in Gnostic films as well. Um, and again, this runs, runs parallel with Kabbalistic imagery. You mentioned Campbell, meaning Joseph Campbell, the power of myth. Uh, we, we remember that terrific series on PBS. I, I know also uh, you, you're heavily steeped in Carl Jung and Jungian symbology. But for the directors that make these movies, are they likewise steeped in Campbell and, and Jung? Or do they, do they un- maybe not fully understand what they're doing, that it's, maybe it's embedded in their own subconscious and it comes out on the screen? Right. It, it's a great question. And it, the answer is it's, it's, it's all of that. Um, I mean, you definitely have directors who know what they're doing, who, um, you know, uh, are familiar with Campbell uh, or are familiar with Young. And they all, and they openly admit to this. Um, uh, I, forget, I forget who it was. I believe it was Richard Kelly and Donnie Darko was talking about. Uh, it was a documentary that he had made or it may have been it may have been um, the director's cut where he was doing the narration over it. Um, where he was talking, he, he starts talking about Joseph Campbell and how this element was here and this element was here. Um, he talks about threshold guardians, things like that. Um, so again, it just depends on the level of, of sophistication of the filmmaker. Um, so very cognizant of it and encode it and know what they're doing. Um, some some of it is subconscious, and you know maybe where the filmmaker, um, you know, wasn't fully aware but was putting it anyway. And then there's the sort of the hybrid of both where. The filmmaker is implanting, you know, hidden Easter eggs or, you know, the Campbell monomyth or, or, or symbolism in film, and they encode another layer that they may not even be aware of. Um, so, so you have, you, you know, it's, 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 you got three of them, really. It's, it's the one where, you know, you know where, where you have the sophisticated filmmaker who is encoding it and you can pick up on it. Then you have, you know, the filmmaker, you know, who it turns up in their film, but maybe they weren't really aware of it. It just part of the creative process, part of the storytelling. And then there's sort of a hybrid one where you definitely have the filmmaker encoding the occult symbolism, but maybe adding more than they're even aware of. Um, so, so you have all of that. And each and, and the one thing that I always talk about is each movie has to be looked at individually. Um, you can't paint with broad strokes when you do this. Um, a symbol in one movie may mean something in, you know, in something in another movie, but something entirely different. And the way you figure that out is uh, the context in which it's presented, the surrounding circumstances, the surrounding imagery, uh, the surrounding plot, uh, you know, the characters, what's going on in the film. Uh, something that's occurring in one movie could have, you know, occult meaning, um, but that doesn't mean it necessarily transfers when you see it in another movie. It could likewise have esoteric meaning, but it just may be something different depending on the surrounding circumstances. And, and why so many Gnostic films came out in that period of the late 90s and the early 2000s? Was it just the zeitgeist? Uh, uh, what, 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 why did they come out at that period? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it is. It, it seems to me that to be some sort of subconscious, um, you know, Jungian synchronicity where it was just the turn of the millennium. Um, you know, the, 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 
the, the, the turnover, you know, maybe from, you could say, one solar age to another, from Pisces to Aquarius, who knows? But you did. You, you just had this rash of Gnostic films coming out. And I'm not sure why, um, but, I mean, it's definitely there. I, I find it hard to believe that these producers were sitting around talking to one another, these movie studios, saying, oh, let's just do this um, all at once. I, I really don't believe that. But nevertheless, you did have, um, you know, starting around 1997 or so up to around 2002, I mean, this is where all the great Gnostic movies come out of, is this five-year time frame. And it, it's, you know, it's the ones we always wind up talking about, The Truman Show, The Matrix, Donnie Darko, the ones you mentioned, Vanilla Sky, Existence, uh, you know, uh, what's the so, other one in there? Dark City. Uh, that's right, right. So is that why uh, I, I, I haven't seen it? I don't know that I'll get around to seeing it, but the latest Matrix film, people are saying it's not very good. Is that because it just, it's not for the times? Yeah, it, 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 it very well could be. I have yet to see it, um, so I, I really can't comment on it. I heard the same. I heard what you heard. I heard it wasn't very good. Also, um, the only thing I, I mean, the only thing I can relate to the movie, and again, I have not seen it, so I'm just going on the marketing that I've seen for it. It struck me as sort of like a parallel dimension type movie, um, but again, this is just based on the marketing. I have not seen Masek Resurrection, so I'm just speculating on that. Because um, a lot of times the marketing can be somewhat a little misleading, um, and sometimes a lot misleading. I just watched the one that I, 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 the latest one I watched was last night in Soho, which I liked very much. But the the marketing for it presented it as a time travel movie, um, and it's really not. It's it's it has a time travel element, but the protagonist in it is not Marty McFly or Bill and Ted or anyone like that. The movie is really a, a horror suspense thriller murder mystery. Uh, and you know, when I sat down and watched it for the first time, I thought I was watching, going to be watching a time travel movie and it wasn't at all. Um, I mean, granted there are scenes that take place in the past and there's a, you know, where the one girl goes back in time in the past, but she's more of a passive observer. Um, when I watched the matrix, uh, marketing, um, it struck me as more of a parallel, uh, sort of almost like a Mandela effect type movie where it's like a parallel universe bleeding into another reality, uh, less, less Gnostic, but again, I have yet to see the movie, so I'm just speculating on the marketing. If I if I um, asked you to give us, in your estimation, a quintessential movie uh, that has alchemical symbology, first explain very quickly what alchemical symbology, what that means, alchemical, and then give us sort of maybe one right. or two movies. Right. Sure. Sure. Um, the the well, it's it's a complex um question because alchemical has numerous meanings um when i usually when i say alchemical i'm usually talking about psychological or spiritual alchemy of course there's alchemy there's alchemy alchemy where it's about you know turning base metal into gold um if you want to watch a movie on that you know the actual you know process look take a look at james bond goldfinger um where the guy is trying to manipulate the gold supply manipulate the metal in Fort Knox for economic purposes. So, I mean, that's alchemy, um, you know, in Goldfinger, the, you know, the golden touch, um, you have the, you know, the philosopher's stone there with the dirty bomb. That's, you know, an alchemical movie where you actually have the manipulation of the metal into something else for economic advantage. It's the golden Fort Knox where you're going to try to make it radioactive, um, change it, alter it in order to make his gold supply worth more money. So if you want to watch a pure alchemical movie, that would be it. For the, for the psychological, um, spiritual alchemy, where, where, when I talk about this, this is where you have a character 
who starts as one thing and winds up by the end of the movie has transformed into something else. Um, they've gone to go on a change. This sort of runs parallel with Gnosticism um, because the Renaissance alchemists took their ideas from the Gnostics, but it's a fine line. It's hair splitting. The Gnostic film delves into the awakening of the character. They're pretty much the same character at the end. I think Dorothy Gale or Alice in Alice in Wonderland, uh, but they, they're wiser. They're just better off. They're a smarter iteration of their earlier version. This is not so with the alchemical movie where the character starts at one thing and then by the end of it is something completely different for, for various reasons. Examples of that, um, I would have uh, the, the three that come to mind, and it's the one I'll bring up again, would be a movie like Black Swan, where the ballerina starts off as sort of this you know melancholy, frustrated, down, down and out ballerina. And by the end of it, she's this monster. She's transformed into something else. Um, the Shining. Uh, with Jack Nicholson, again, where he starts as um, the failed writer, and by the end of the movie, he's the psychotic killer. But that's an alchemical transition. That's an alchemical movie. And the one that I just I just mentioned, Last Night in Soho, um, the character of um, the Anya Taylor-Joy character, not the other one, um, the Anya Taylor-Joy character, I don't want to give too much of it away because it just came, it came out of Blu-ray. She, she goes through an alchemical process, she starts off at the beginning as one thing, and by the end, she's something completely different. So if, if right, right off the bat, if you ask me to name three alchemical movies uh, where you're dealing with the psychological, spiritual alchemy, um, I'd, I would go with Black Swan, The Shining, and Last Night at Soho. Uh, we're coming up on a break here. I'll, I'll start sure. this conversation now, and then we'll pick it up on the other side as well. Robert W. Sullivan IV is with us. Cinema Symbolisms, one uh, volumes one through three, and he's working on uh, volume four. Uh, numerology. Uh, I mean, there are movies that are overtly about numerology, like uh, the number 23, that Jim Carrey movie, which uh, I think that came around out in uh, like mid-2000s or something, which was kind of a rare non-comedic film for him. But it was fascinating. Um, but then there are movies that are not overtly about numbers, but they are just rife with nu numerology. Can, can you give me um, uh, an example? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you want me to do it now, or yeah, let's just talk. We have about a minute here, and then we'll. Yeah, uh, that's then we'll... fine. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there. Uh, I always look for numbers. Numbers are are very good because um, numbers really don't lie. Now they can have multiple meaning. Um, we can take a look at like a movie, um, like such as Mother with Jennifer Lawrence, where the number eight is pervasive. Um, that has a lot of occult meaning. That deals with Gnosticism. That deals with um, the eighth level of, uh, it's, it, it has to do with uh, the, the eighth level, uh, what they call it, the hermetic spheres, where Sophia lives. And if, if you watch Mother, um, the Jennifer Lawrence character represents Sophia. And everything in the house is eight-sided. Everything, the doorknobs, everything. So something like that would be something that is, is very relevant. The number would be relevant. Um, the number eight it has, is, is one that has loads of esoteric meaning. Um, it denotes time travel. Um, when you take the, number, take the number eight and flip it on its side, um, it's the lemnus gate. It's the symbol for infinity, time manipulation. And of course, oh, that's really same. cool. Yeah, we see that in Back to the Future. Right. Uh, with how long did how long did how many times did you have to watch Mother before that jumped out at you, or did you spot that right away? You go, ah, this oh, that is... one. No, I spotted that one right away. That oh. one. That that one was very apparent to me. 
You're very um, clever. Very clever. Yeah. Robert, stay with us. We'll t- take sure. a quick time out. Robert W. Oh. Sullivan, The Fourth, Cinema Symbolisms, Volume 1 through 4. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll continue to delve into the occult symbology encoded in some of your favorite movies. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. We are back with Robert W. Sullivan IV, and we're talking about uh, symbolism in cinema. Uh, we were talking about numerology, and you mentioned the mother, uh, the movie Mother, with Jennifer Lawrence. Um, can you give us another example, and then I want to, then we'll move on. I want to talk about uh, Halloween Kills. The the um, numbers. Um, so we we talked about Mother. So we would go into another movie that I would I would give a great example of. This one would be um, Black Swan. Uh, the movie I mentioned earlier. Um, this has one of the best ones of them all. Um, very subtle. It's when Natalie Portman uh, is arriving. This is near the beginning of it. Um, is arriving at the ballet uh, school and she looks up on the wall and there's a huge poster with Winona Ryder on it. Um, and of course, she plays Beth McIntyre, who is the ballerina being forced out of retire, being forced into retirement. Excuse me. And um, the uh, there's a date on it. And the date is uh, February 12th, um, and it's noticeable. Um, and that is completely intentional. Um, that is a reference to the birth date of a Russian ballerina named Anna Polova. Um, and if you research her, um, she crafted a dance called the Dying Swan that revolved around uh, Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake, of course, and Black Swan. You know, that's what the whole movie's about is right. Swan Lake. And um uh, her, her ballet was called the dying swan. And of course it's, it's very symbolically appropriate because that's exactly what Winona Ryder is. She's the dying swan. Uh, she's the, uh, you know, re- retiring ballerina who tries to kill herself. Um, and, and, and is forced into retirement. And when you watch the movie, um, and you watch the end credits of it, uh, Winona Ryder is actually credited as Beth McIntyre, the dying swan. So when you see something like that, then you know, okay, you know, we're, we're really dealing with someone here who is very adroit with this stuff. And, uh, you know, the movie's going to be overloaded with, 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 with symbolism and little themes and Easter eggs and things like that. So um, numbers are great, and I always look for numbers. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times they can definitely tip a director's hand uh, to, um, to to what he's going for or what she's going for in a particular film. Now, most people aren't going to catch that stuff. I mean, you are uh, incredibly skilled at it and very, I mean, your knowledge is so vast and deep. Uh, why do they then bother to put that in there if I would say probably what, 99% of the audience is, is, is going to be lost on them? Right. It, 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 it. It, it's for several reasons. One is, and, and this is what I, I say in, in the thing, it can work on a psychological level. Um, you, even though you, you're, you're not, um, and this is when you get into the archetypes and with Carl Jung, even though you may not be picking up on it um, consciously, it can resonate subconsciously. Um, so, you know, you know, it, it's twofold. One is, 
you know, it can work on a psychological subconscious level. The other thing is, and, and this is, this is, you know, what, what I, I, I like, you know, which is one of another reason motivation for it is, um, it's there and it's like a game of chess. I mean, they're challenging you, the viewer or me, or, you know, whoever's watching the movie to keep an eye out for this stuff. And it turns the movie really into something more than just, you know, like you said, like a popcorn movie or a piece of celluloid. It's, it's, but putting these little esoteric undercurrents and Easter eggs in movies, I believe that it, it elevates the film. It turns it into mythology. And, um, you know, it's eventually discovered. Someone picks up on it. I picked up on it. You can read about it in the book. Um, you know, and like I said, the, the one thing that, you know, for me, a lot of times is, um, you know, I've watched certain movies loads and loads of times. And, and no matter how many times I watch them, I always seem to see something new in them. Um, so, you know, you know, when you're watching a movie um, and you become aware of it, you know, keep an eye out for this stuff. Um, it, it, it's, it will enlighten you as to what, you know, to maybe a deeper understanding of what the movie is trying to convey. All right. So you mentioned you, you've recently seen Halloween Kills. This came out probably well, Halloween 2021, the latest installment in the Halloween. I mean, how long is this? How many uh, this franchise has been going on? <laughs> um, uh, what is it like 20 films or 18 films, something like that? Yeah, the, I was born in 1971 and the first Halloween movie came out um, in 1978 like right around Halloween. So I was seven years old. Um, and here I am 50 years old now and I'm still watching Halloween and they're still making, and I'm still watching Halloween movies. Um, so yeah, this has been a franchise that, um, has been around for, for a while. What they, what they seem to be doing with these films, um, is, is they keep, they, they keep rebooting them and, and they keep erasing the storylines that have come before. So you have Halloween one, I mean, it's complicated. You have Halloween one, then you have Halloween two, and then you have Halloween three, which is sort of the ulterior universe. And then you have Halloween's four, five, and six, which, um, are a continuation of part two. Uh, Halloween two, but then you get into Halloween H two O, which is which erases four, five, and six, <laughs> oh, Lord. And, which is which, which is which, which is a sequel to Halloween one, two, and three, and then the new ones that you have, and then you have the Rob, the two Rob Zombie films, and then you have Halloween two thousand eighteen, which is a direct sequel to Halloween nineteen seventy eight, which is erases everything else. Um, but what they what what the filmmakers have done with these is with with these last two and the third one coming out, which is Halloween Ends, um, don't hold your breath. Um, is 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 the movies these the, the last two Halloween eighteen and Halloween Kills? There are there are these references to all the other movies, um, and it's like these it's, it is kind of like a Mandela effect where it's like a, these parallel universes are bleeding in. To, to these most recent movies. I mean, you could see homages all over the place to Halloween three with the silver shamrock mask, the Halloween two with the kid with the razor blade in his mouth. That's referenced a couple times. Um, the kid with the boom box, which is Lance Warlock's son who played, uh, Michael Myers in part two. You have an homage to that. Um, uh, Mrs. Elrond, uh, with a ham sandwich is referenced. Um, uh, Halloween resurrection, uh, which is the sequel to, um, uh, Halloween H2O um, is, is referenced in there one, at one point. You see all these references to all the other movies um, coming out in these new ones, and, and that's really interesting. And then the one thing that they've done with Halloween 18 and this latest one, Halloween Kills, is they've, they, they reverse everything. Um, and it, it's, it's not really 
anything sinister or I would even call a cult, but it does work as a great cinematic theme. Um, it's like, how many times can they do this? I mean, can they possibly do this? Um, where, you know, it's, it's, it, it started with 18 where, you know, Laurie Strode, this is Jamie Lee Curtis is the hunt, huntress hunting Michael Myers, who's now the hunted where of course this is reversed you know, from the earlier movies where he's the guy stalking her. She's now stalking him. Um, and then we have in, in Halloween Kills, um, the bully in the original Halloween, Lonnie Elam. Uh, he is now being bullied at the beginning of Halloween Kills. So again, we have role reversal. Uh, in Halloween, the original one, we have the realtor trying to sell the uh, Myers house. Uh, Laurie Strode's father, Strode Realty, is trying to liquidate Meyer, the Myers house. In Halloween Kills, we have realtors living in the house, um, not trying to live, not trying to liquidate it, but living in it. Um, so we have all this role reversal going on in hollow in halloween and then of course it wouldn't be halloween if, if if there wasn't a psycho reference in there and of course we we get into this with the very first one i mean you know you know the, the there's a loads of psycho homages uh in in um the very first halloween with john carpenter deborah hill i mean they were huge fans of the movie i mean you know just the, you know jamie lee curtis the daughter of jamie you know of uh uh marion crane um uh, Jan- Janet Lee. Um, we have uh, the names of the characters. Sam Loomis is the boyfriend uh, from Psycho. Of course, this is Doctor Loomis, Donald Pleasance, who hangs around with a, a nurse named Marion. Um, you know, in, in Halloween, and and then of course this carries forward in, into Halloween Kills, where I guess I'm gonna have to spoil it here, um, where Karen gets gets knifed to death at the end. That is a complete, um, almost scene by scene. Um, reshoot of the shower scene from psycho where michael is stabbing um karen this is a, a reshoot from psycho this this shower scene in psycho and then, then then they do one thing that's also very interesting at the end there uh halloween kills at the, at the very end of it when michael um is staring at the window and you can see his reflection in the glass uh, you can very faintly see the out you know the 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 uh, what's the word i'm looking for the um silhouette no the um reflection uh, no the you see the reflection it's the uh, subliminal ah. uh that's what i'm looking for you can see the subliminal the the skull um the 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 skull outline in the in the mask and and this of course ties into the original psycho where norman bates looks at the screen at the very end and, and you see the mother's skeletal remains superimposed over his and when, and when you watch it in halloween it, it looks like that it looks like you know the the the, the mummy of the mother superimposed almost over mm. michael myers so so we have that psycho little you know easter egg in there um good stuff um you know uh, very 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 well done all right we'll take another time out robert come back and uh, uh discuss more occult symbolism in cinema back with our discussion right after these When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. And we are back and we'll also take questions and comments from our uh, YouTube uh, live chat and the Rumble live chat. If you've got a question for Robert W. Sullivan IV, film historian, researcher, and uh, the books, uh, volumes one through three of Cinema Symbolism. He is currently working on Cinema Symbolism 4. Um, one thing I learned from you, 
I've learned lots of things from you, Robert, over the years. But uh, the, the, um, the historical figure, John D., is a member of Queen Elizabeth I's court. And he was kind of her spy, I guess, spy master. He was in many ways sort of the what the in, in, the inspiration for James Bond and 007? Yeah, absolutely. He he is a very interesting character, and he turns up in media all the time. And not only that, he turns up at the uh, uh, during uh, the entertainments of the time. Um, yeah, he was the, her court astrologer, um, and he's a spy. Uh, her spy master was Walsingham, but um, he definitely went into the Holy Roman Empire on her behalf to try to undermine Rudolf II and the Holy Roman Empire. Um, probably he is most well known for um, summoning these angelic hierarchies, these angelic beings. Um, you know that that you know they run parallel. They they're the guardians of the Sephirah and Kabbalah. Um, they guard the celestial hierarchies in Christianity. Um, you can equate them perhaps to the archons in, in Gnosticism, but they're angelic beings. Um, and of course he wanted to gain wisdom from them. And, uh, he is a, what you would call a Kabbalist. Um, I mean, he's a Christian Kabbalist. It's, it's definitely a Christian interpretation of the Hebrew Kabbalah, um, where, where it's, it's like I said, you have these Christian angelic hierarchies, um, that he is communicating with for, you know, uh, uh, he's an astrologer. He was, you're correct. He was Queen Elizabeth's court astrologer. Um, very interesting character, mathematician. Um, and, uh, but you know, he, 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 you know, he, he is the attack of the Counter-Reformation. He, uh, he, he was attacked um, by Christopher Marlowe, who, whether he was actually an agent or not, was certainly doing the uh, Jesuits' um, bidding. Uh, I mean, he, he is completely undermined in Faustus, um, the Marlowe play, which, which presents Don, uh, John D. excuse me, as a black magician. Um, and, uh, you know, D's philosophy underlies the Rosicrucians, I should point that out. Um, and again, uh, Kabbalah, um, Christian Kabbalah was also attacked by the Jewits um, as, as heretical. Um, one, one of the things in, 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 in Faustus that, that does that is where Faustus summons Mephistopheles, and, and Mephistopheles appears as a, uh, a, a, like a demon, a monster. And he says, oh, don't, don't look like that. Come back as something more calmly, so, something you know, that I can accept. He says, come back as a, dressed as a Franciscan friar. And Mephistopheles does. Um, and he comes back dressed as a Franciscan friar. That is a reference. So, you know, you, you, you know, this, I'm putting this out to show you how far this occult symbolism in media goes back and entertainment goes back. When Mephistopheles returns as the friar, that is a reference to a real life Franciscan friar named Francesco uh, Giorgi, um, who was uh, one of, wrote one of the first books about Christian Kabbalah. So um, the implication is that, you know, that Kabbalah is actually demonism, that it's actually, you know, uh, you know, satanic, um, and D by default is doing the bidding of Mephistopheles. Of course, we have the real rehabilitation with D um, via two ways with uh, uh, Spencer's uh, Fairy Queen, the Red Cross Knight is John D, and then most famously Prospero in the Tempest, um, the White Magician, the benevolent White Magician, um, Shakespeare Bacon, whoever you want to say, um, is also personifies John D. Um, so you have this sort of competing, you know, where where Marlowe is portraying D um, as as the evil figure, and then Shakespeare is portraying him as the supreme White Magician. Um, and 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 like I said, whether Marlowe is an agent of the Jesuits or not, he certainly is doing their bidding. Um, if you look at some of his other plays. 
plays. Um, Tamberline is an attack on Queen Elizabeth herself, um, and uh, the Jew of Malta is an attack on her physician, Rodrigo Lopez. Um, so he was really trying to undermine a lot of the Elizabethan re Renaissance. It's no wonder that he was killed at 29 in a, in a barroom fight. Likely, the story goes within the world of conspiracy by Elizabethan, Elizabethan agents at the behest of Queen Elizabeth, um, because he was trying to undermine you know, the Elizabethan capitalistic Renaissance. Um, so yeah, I mean, Dee is a fascinating character, but you will find him in the entertainments uh, of the time. Um, and like I said, you know, the you know the the use of occult symbology in theater movies predates Hollywood. Um, and the examples I just gave you is a great example of this. So where where does John Dee and James Bond like was John Dee's symbol 007? Right, that's it. Um, when 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 he would go to when he would go on a spot, you know, when he was in the Holy Roman Empire, and he'd write a, a correspondence um, to 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 Queen Elizabeth, he would sign it 007, 007. Um, and it's actually meant to look like spy glasses. It's a zero zero, and then a line over them with a line down the sign. It looks like the number seven. And of course, the the symbolism of the eyeglasses was that he was her eyes only. The communication was for her eyes only. He was her eyes in the field. Um, so yeah, he was uh, a spy master as well, or you know, one of her spies reporting to her Walsingham. Um, part of this. If you if you look at it, he's part of this sort of um, what you would call a, a Protestant esoteric, you know, I, I dare use the word Rosicrucian spy ring um, that was sort of combating the Catholic League. Um, it was it was it was you know combating the Jesuits who were you know doing the bidding of the uh, you know the, of the Roman Church. They were forming sort of the opposite, this Protestant sort of spy spy ring around Queen Elizabeth to sort of frustrate the Jesuits. Um, if you look at, you know, if you read between the lines of history, sort of beneath the surface, that's going on. That's what's going on with D. You know, some of the other members involved with this would have been Kelly, you know, Edward Kelly, the guy who helps him conjure the angels, Walsingham, Giordano Bruno, um, Drake, uh, Sir Walter Raleigh, people, Edmund Spencer, people like that, who are sort of creating this cult, you know, this Protestant mystical cult around Queen Elizabeth to sort of combat, you know, the hermeticism, the darker hermeticism of the Jesuits. All right. We'll take one final time out, come back, and uh, we'll take two, We'll take some questions from our uh, live chat and also over the phone, 416-360-0740 and the GTA toll-free from just about anywhere, 1-866-744-740. Back with more. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, Robert, before we dive in, we've got lots of great questions coming up on the uh, the live chat. Uh, give us the website where we can follow your work. Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you, Richard, again, for having me on the Conspiracy conspiracy Show tonight. My website is my name. Uh, my name is Robert W. Sullivan IV, and my website is just that. It's www.robertwsullivan, and then the letter I and the letter V for the fourth, robertwsullivaniv.com. Links to buy my books, information about me. Uh, it's a very easy site to navigate. Go there, um, you know, for all, you know, for up, you know, updates by me, you know, shows I'm going on. www.robertwsullivaniv.com. All right, MG in the live chat asks Robert, are you fam familiar with the shows Outlander and Rubicon, and can you share thoughts on symbolism in these shows? 
Uh, I am not familiar with either show, and I do not talk about movies or TV shows that I have not seen. All right. Uh, Thinker asks, is there any symbolism in the movie Gemini Man with Will Smith? Uh, I have not seen it, so I could not comment. All right. Uh, Breaking the Image asks, why didn't more of the public, if many or any at all, not recognize the symbolism in film over the century? And why not more? I'm not sure what he means by a public outcry. Uh, I think, again, he's he's he's. Maybe thinking that there's some sort of sinister mo- uh, when we when we hear occult and we hear symbology embedded, he's thinking that there's some nefarious purpose to it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there can be some of it does is, is dark, but um, you know, it's it's uh, to my understanding, it's it's a relatively new um, study. I mean, you know, I, I, my my the, the cinema book. <laughs> well, the Royal Arch of Enoch came out in 2012, 10 years ago, um, and and to my knowledge, like you know, some of the movies I analyzed in that, I did, that was a Masonic book, a Masonic history book. But I took on some of the Masonic films. Um, to my knowledge, that was one of the, I mean, that's one of the first ones that ever analyzed National Treasure as a Masonic movie as being a, a Masonic ritual on screen. So it's a relatively new study, but. Um, you know, you know, like subliminals, the use of subliminals, that's all been, you know, you know, banned because that, that has to do with advertising. Um, but they do it in movies, but it's usually like product placement. Um, so, you know, it can it can be nefarious, but it, it can also, you know, be um, interesting. It can be, you know, you know, if you if you read the Renaissance philosophers, um, you know, uh, the the presentation of the archetypes, although subconsciously they viewed it as a form of divinity. So, um, you know, it, it doesn't always have to be nefarious. All right. Toxic Canadian asks, so this is a, a favorite I know. Uh, yeah, we've talked about this in the past. Yeah. Eyes wide shut. Uh, yeah. Some of, a quick analysis. Quick analysis. Right. This is Kubrick's swan song. He is, uh, Stanley Kubrick is very adroit uh, when it comes to symbolism. Um, I talk about uh, loads of his movies in my books, Eyes Wide Shut being one of them. I believe I talked about that in Cinema Symbolism too. Um, pay attention to the Christmas lights. Um, they're very bright. They're very gaudy. Uh, they turn up throughout the film when the Tom Cruise character is, is con- being confronted with all the ills that plague society, whether it be child trafficking, pornography, prostitution, drug abuse. When he gets to the summer, the, the Summerton mansion where the Illuminati hangs out, there are no Christmas lights. That's done on purpose. That's to convey that this is really sort of the higher, you know, the, the, the evil, you know, above the petty evil that he's already shown you. Um, there's lots of symbolism going on um, in, in the ritual, the magic circle. Uh, Kubrick uses repetition. I, we won't have time to get into it, but he repeats things in his movies all over the place. I'd wide shut is no exception um, with the magic circle that turns up at the end. Um, the guy red cloak kiss the magic circle left uh, backwards, which is black magic. Uh, the, the music that's playing is being played backwards. Um, that of course conjures the exorcist anytime, you know, you, you hear backwards English uh, or, you know, the language being backwards. And again, he's trying to make this evil. He's trying to convey evil, um, to, to, to the viewer with, with, with the Somerton, uh, residents. Um, that's just a brief overview of it. Um, it's, it's a very intense movie. Um, and it's something I, I analyzed in CS2. All right. Uh, we've talked about this before, but since we're on the subject of Kubrick and, and, um, you mentioned the shining earlier, um, there are those who, who believe that Kubrick was trying to relay in the movie, the shining that 
the Apollo moon landing, Apollo 11 moon landing was a hoax and that he was the one that filmed it on a soundstage somewhere in the desert. And so he was using symbolism in The Shining to let the cat out of the bag. Can you talk about that? Yeah, there's there's probably some truth to this. Whether it was a hoax or not is is debatable. The, the, you could craft the argument that they actually went to the moon, but they couldn't film there. Um, and, you know, of course, this is the scene in The Shining where the boy, Danny, stands up wearing the Apollo 11 uh, sweater, you know, with Apollo 11. And it goes to room 237 back in the late 1970s. The moon was 237,000 miles to the Earth from the Earth. So this is Kubrick showing you that he filmed the moon, the moon landing or staged it in a sound studio. Um there's ample evidence that this might be the case. I mean, certainly if you look at his earlier movies like Strange Love and 2001, um, you could see where Kubrick would have been could have been retained to do this based on the cinematography of the, of that of those two movies. But one of the real smoking guns in this is the movie that he made before The Shining, Barry Lyndon. Um, and this is something I talked about in CS3. I wasn't aware of it. I became aware of it. Um, he actually used, Kubrick used NASA technology uh, to film that movie. He wanted to film uh, the movie via, via candlelight, which couldn't be done. It was too dark. You could light a candle, but you always had to have an, an, an outside source, like a spotlight or something. Um, it didn't work. It always came out too dark. Uh, NASA had developed lenses that allowed you to do this, and Kubrick was given access to these lenses uh, to film Barry Lyndon. I mean, it just begs the question, you know, I mean, how is it possible that Kubrick, you know, has an in with NASA, uh, you know, to get these lenses to film Barry Lyndon? Um, and the question kind of answers itself when you start thinking about it. Well, if, I mean, if he was able to borrow, you know, lenses from NASA, I mean, he must have had contacts there and he must have worked for them or, or knew somebody. Um, so it adds that, you know, yeah, I mean, maybe he really did, uh, you know, film film this footage for NASA of the guys hopping around on the moon in a sound studio. I mean, you, you, you can argue it one of two ways. You could say it was a hoax and they didn't go. Or you could also craft an argument that they actually did go to the moon, but they just couldn't film there. So they had Kubrick, you know, film, film the guys jumping around on the soundstage. And when you couple that with the imagery and the shining, and then the knowledge, you know, well, Barry Lyndon with the NASA lenses and then, you know, he made movies where you can clearly see, you know, you know, if you watch 2001 and Strangelove, you know, and you're, you work for NASA, you can say, OK, you know, this is the guy we want to hire. So um, it's certainly probable. I mean, it's, it's not, I don't think, any more uh, a weird conspiracy theory. Um, I definitely think it's probably more likely than not that Kubrick was the guy, in fact, who did film uh, the guys hopping around, you know, in, in a sound studio. And and with Wide Shut, his swan song, and, you know, you've heard the theories that he was murdered and that he was what, – what do you make of this idea that, that in that movie he was trying to to tell us about the existence of these secret societies and this powerful sort of Illuminati-type group? Yeah, I mean it, it's certainly possible um, whether whether – you know, you can argue it both ways because you do have it, um, you know, you do have it there on the screen for, you know, everyone to see. Um, you know, the, on the other hand, the movie does come out. Um, the movie's not suppressed or anything. Um, true, Kubrick does die right around its release. Um, in the end, the movie does come out, though. So, I mean, you could always say, well, if, if you know, he was trying to expose this, why would the movie even come out? Um, but no, I, I tend to agree with you. He definitely, um, I mean, is showing you this, this, this sort of bleak group, um, 
you know, that is sort of the puppet masters, you know, running everything from behind the scenes. Um, you know, did this cause his death? Did this, you know, contribute to his death? Did this make him a marked man? I mean, well, we may never know, but, you know, it's irrefutable that he dies um, right when that movie comes out. So make of it as you, as whatever you want to. Just like uh, we just have a couple minutes here. Just talk sure. briefly about um, this is another uh, film technique, and that is occult casting. Right, right. This is this is a favorite of mine, and and, and this is really sort of a memory mnemonic, um, where where what they will do is, um, and this is very expansive, um, and this can be done with with props and images. Where they, what you're asking me about is this is where they where where a studio will retain an actor or an actress, put them in a movie to draw in sort of their cultural baggage from an earlier work and invest this new work with the atmosphere, the imagery, um, the je ne sais quoi, if you want, um, from this earlier movie. Uh, you know, an example, some examples of this would be Max von Sydow in the first, in, in the episode seven, um, uh, The Force Awakens. Von Sydow's presence in that movie, we probably don't have time to get into it, is clearly draw, is, is clearly designed to draw in the first Dune movie from 1984 in The Exorcist. Um, what are some other ones? Uh, Anthony Zerbe in the second Matrix movie, um, his presence in that is designed to evoke uh, the Omega Man and and his and his his some of his dialogue in that. Um, uh, Catherine Ross in Donnie Darko is designed to conjure uh, uh, the graduate with Dustin Hoffman um, and, and, and bring in some of the themes from the graduate into Donnie Darko. Um, it's very psychological. It's very subconscious. Um, it works very effectively though. Um, and, and they do it with actors, they do it with actresses and they also do it with props. Um, and it can be, it, it's, it's when they do it with, with props and, and with actresses, it, it is, it's a form of a, a cult mnemonics. I call it a cult casting. It's really a form of the art of memory where they're using this imagery to draw in something else. Um, ah, but it's, it's right. very, it's very potent. Robert, we're going to have to leave it there. Robert W. Sullivan IV for the fourth. Robert W. Sullivan IV.com, the website. We look forward to Cinema Symbolism number four. And I, I know you're kind of reworking some of the other ones. Always a great pleasure, Robert. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. All right. That's it for me. My thanks to Carlos and Ryan. I'll be back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.